This morning's gospel reading is taken from Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the kingdom finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, He takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Second reading is from Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Biff. Good morning, friends. Uh, my name's Sam. I lead our Uni Church congregation. That's a joy to uh, explore God's Word with you this morning. I wonder, how much do you think about Satan, demons, angels? Do spiritual beings, does a spiritual reality play much of a role in how you see the world around you, how you understand events in your life, how you think about living out your faith? Are you afraid of Satan, 
do you perhaps kind of buy into the default naturalism that lots of us live out, uh, that reflects our culture, basically acting as if there, there is no such reality, even if he is a character in the Bible? Well, last week we began our exploration of the work of Christ on the cross with the central idea that Jesus' death paid the penalty we owed for sin to make us right with God. And sin and the death which results from it are the great barriers that you and I face to be right with God. And it is Jesus' death which overcomes them to bring salvation to you and to me. But today, we're we're looking at a a different face of the same diamond. Instead of focusing on how Jesus' death on the cross removes the barrier of sin between each of us and God, we're we're kind of zooming back a bit to look at the, the kind of grand cosmic drama of the cross. The cross as the battlefield on which God and Satan fought their greatest battle and the fight when Jesus dealt the death blow to his enemy. This is the perspective on the atonement often called Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. And and so the general shape of our time now will be tracing a biblical theology of God's fight against his enemy, our enemy, Satan, with Christ's death on the cross at the centre of that big story. So we'll begin at the beginning, we'll work our way through the narrative of the Bible, and we'll think along the way about what it means for us. So let's begin in the opening pages of the Bible. If you've got your Bible with you uh, and you'd like to follow along, have a look at Genesis chapter 3. Everything that isn't God was made by God. So before the beginning, God had no enemy. There was no evil. There was no opposition to God. But after creating both the material and the spiritual worlds, humans and angels and all creatures, something perhaps unexpected happens in Genesis chapter 3. A character enters the story, enters the creation, who is crafty, and who opposes God's rule over his created order. The serpent, the first presentation of of Satan, the devil, he deceives and seduces the, the people into rejecting God by eating the forbidden fruit. Who is this serpent? Well, perhaps the fullest answer that we see is given in Revelation 12, verse 9. It says, The great dragon was thrown down... And that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this serpent that we meet in the garden is the devil, which means slanderer, and Satan, which means accuser. He's the deceiver of the whole world. Jesus calls him the evil one calls him a liar and a murderer and the ruler of this world. The Pharisees call him Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Paul calls him the god of this age and the prince of the power of the air. That's the one we meet 
in Genesis 3. He's already evil, already a deceiver, already a murderer when he appears in the garden of God. And so in Genesis 3.15, God speaks to this serpent and he pronounces judgment on him. The eternal... uh, Sorry, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So God promises that a human descendant of the woman will be the one to crush the head of this serpent. It's one of the reasons why Jesus had to come as a human. And so then as the story unfolds, as we see the world after the fall, we see the history of God's people and the whole world reflect the reality of Satan's presence and influence in the world. We see contenders to God's power arise. Enemies, human and cosmic, who resist God's rule and who desire to lead or trap God's people away from God. Perhaps most famous among these kind of pretenders, these challenges to God is Pharaoh, the the self-appointed God of Egypt. He places himself in direct challenge to God's rule. And God says to Pharaoh, I could have stretched out my hand and wiped you off the face of the earth, but I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh's attempt to oppose God ends with him at the bottom of the Red Sea and his kingdom vanquished. God's enemy is destroyed. But human rulers continue to try, right? Nations war against God and his people right up to the days of Jesus when Israel is oppressed by Rome, who are, in, along with Pharaoh and Egypt in Scripture, the other great human opposition to God's rule. At Jesus' birth, we immediately hear echoes of that earlier story of challenge to God's power. We hear echoes of Exodus as God's oppressed people suffer the genocide of their firstborn sons, but in the middle of the tragedy, a child is born like Moses who will bring God's rescue and defeat God's enemies. And that child, that son, grows in perfect obedience to God's will. And as soon as he begins his public ministry at his baptism, what does he do next? He goes camping in the wilderness by himself for a showdown with the devil. It's in Matthew 4. If you've got, if you've got your Bible, uh, turn there. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. One of the funnier verses in the Bible, I think. But he's, he's physically weakened, right? He's at his physical limit. And it's that time when the devil comes to him, the tempter comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So he waits until the moment of his best opportunity. Jesus is desperately hungry and he moves in for the attack. 
But Jesus resists and he overcomes the tempter. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan's attack is blocked. And Satan tries two more times. He tempts Jesus with with pride and with power, but they're just as useless. Jesus is unmoving. Satan eventually skulks back into the shadows and leaves Jesus alone. And then, as Jesus, off this victory over Satan, goes about his public ministry, preaching, teaching, healing, you get these recurring moments that are very strange if you've come across them, where he comes into contact with evil spirits, right, with, with demons, and this cosmic battle that we're seeing kind of comes into view through Jesus' earthly ministry. And every time, every single time that Jesus comes into contact with a demon... Jesus wins and the demon loses. The demons recognize who Jesus is. In fact, of all the characters in the gospel stories there, they're the ones with the fullest recognition of who Jesus is. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Whenever these impure spirits see Jesus, they fall down before him. They cry out, you are the son of God. Jesus keeps healing. He keeps casting demons out of people, even raising people from the dead. He's taking ground from the devil. Every skirmish goes the same way. Satan and his forces are constantly retreating before the advance of this irresistible and relentless enemy that they're facing. Have a look at the passage that Biff read for us uh, in Luke chapter 11. Jesus, he drives out a demon like he does often, but some of the people who are watching They say that Jesus is driving out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Which kind of seems like weird logic for them to draw, right? You're driving out demons by the power of demons, they're saying. And Jesus makes the point that perhaps seems so obvious. He says, how could Satan drive out Satan? If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? And then in verse 21, Jesus uses this little word picture to explain exactly what he is doing to Satan and Satan's forces. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Satan is the strong man. And someone stronger is Jesus. And the dividing up the plunder is the liberation of Satan's slaves. We are the plunder that Jesus takes by force from Satan's house. So we've seen the introduction of Satan in the garden, setting himself up in opposition to God and bringing sin and death into God's creation. We've seen his influence 
right, as human and spiritual authorities resist God's rule, typified by Pharaoh. And we've seen Jesus, the one promised back in Genesis 3, launch the decisive campaign against Satan as they go head-to-head in the wilderness and then as they continue to fight battles throughout Jesus' ministry, which continue to go pretty one-sided. Let's, let's turn then to perhaps the most important New Testament passage in which the victory of Christ at the cross is explained. Colossians 2, and particularly verses 13 to 15 from what we read before. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. These are, these are amazing verses. In, in these verses, we see both the forgiveness of our sins and Jesus' conquering of the cosmic powers that oppose God. Can you see both of those in those words there? He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. So the penalty for our sin, that the sentence for our crime, Jesus took it away from us by nailing it to the cross. And verse 15, he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them. He triumphed over them by the cross. Those powers and authorities there, it's kind of strange language, right? Those are the the spiritual cosmic forces that oppose God. And when they line up in row upon row like a wicked army to fight the great battle against Jesus on the cross, what does he do to them, do the verses say? He disarms them. Literally, he strips them. He pulls their weapons from their hands and leaves them powerless. He makes a public spectacle of them. In the heavenly realm, they are humiliated and their futile evil is exposed as Jesus parades his defeated enemies. And he triumphs over them. They lose the fight. That same cross, which is the execution platform for Jesus, is the same platform where he stands and displays his victory to the whole world. How did he do it? By his obedience, by resisting the temptations of the devil, as he did in the wilderness as no one else has ever been able to do. And in the face of Satan's strongest attacks, all of Satan's slander, all his accusations, all his deception, all his temptations, all his evil were hurled at Jesus on the cross. But just like in the wilderness, none of them stuck. Christ absolutely refused to retaliate. Because Jesus, he had all the power, right? Even on the cross, with all the power of Rome and Jerusalem and hell lined up against him, he could have ended them in a moment. But instead, in obedience, he remained free, uncontaminated 
and compromised by evil. John Stott writes, We are not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory. Rather, the cross was the victory won and the resurrection as victory endorsed, proclaimed and demonstrated. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus because death was already defeated. So we've, we've done kind of a, a very fast whip through kind of biblical theology here up to the cross. We've gone kind of creation and full Old Testament, life and ministry of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we come to the, the age of the church, to us. So where is Satan now? What is Satan doing now? If Jesus won the victory over Satan on the cross, then why does Satan and sin and death still exist and affect us? Well, Jesus has won the decisive victory over Satan on the cross. But Satan hasn't yet met his final destiny of being cast into hell. Satan still prowls around, Scripture says, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He still tempts. He still accuses. He still attacks. But his power is broken. And for those who are in Jesus, he is impotent. His attacks don't land. As Ephesians 6 reassures us, faith is a shield which extinguishes all the flaming arrows of the evil one. If Satan is a serpent, a snake, then he's a snake that has had venomoid surgery, the procedure to remove the glands which produce venom. That snake might rage and thrash and coil and bite, but its power to kill has been completely removed. See, Jesus is still advancing. He is still taking ground from the devil. And he's using us to do it. Every time you help someone meet Jesus, every time you bring healing and wholeness and hope where there is darkness, you are taking ground from the devil. And because you have Christ in you, all the devil can do is rage and retreat. In a wonderful kind of mirror of God's first judgment on Satan back in Genesis 3, Romans 16.20 promises us that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, under our feet. John Stott, again, he writes, every Christian conversion involves a power encounter in which the devil is obliged to relax his hold on somebody's life and the superior power of Christ is demonstrated. On, on May 8, today's very date, in 1945, the British 
and American armies announced their final and complete victory over Nazi Germany, having taken Berlin against the last embittered resistance. I've seen the, the bullet holes that still scatter buildings in central Berlin that marked that last day of the war. It was called VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. But VE Day wasn't really the day when the war in Europe was won. The war was really won on D-Day. Almost 10 months earlier, the Allies began their greatest operation of the war. A huge army invaded mainland Europe. The German army was broken and began retreating. But it still took nearly a year to totally wipe out those forces and take Europe. Their enemy's back was broken, but they were still dangerous. And you and I, we live between D-Day and V-E Day. We don't live in fear of the victory of Satan. He's got no teeth, right? You are on the winning side of the cosmic war. As Paul rejoices, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to live in fear, but we also shouldn't live in triumphalism, where we just ignore the threat which Satan still poses to our world and to us in his last days. He's mortally wounded, but even while he's bleeding out, he's still dangerous. Luther wrote this, Christ won a victory over the law, sin, our flesh, the world, the devil, death, hell, and all evils. And this victory of his he has given to us. Even though these tyrants, our enemies, accuse and terrify us, they cannot cannot drive us into despair or condemn us. For Christ, whom God the Father raised from the dead, is victor over them. And he is our righteousness. So, if you're someone who, who believes the gospel, but kind of functionally doesn't really believe that Satan is active and working in the world, let me challenge you that that's, that's not a biblical way of looking at the world. Satan is de famed, but he's real. He still does impact our world and our lives. Even in my own preparation to to preach today, I've been fighting discouragement and and self-doubt. In particular, difficult and distracting conversations, old memories and sadnesses that have been threatening to overwhelm. I've really been feeling that this week. The devil still prowls and hunts, but he has no teeth. If you live in fear of Satan, of demons, of spiritual oppression, then the message for you is one of freedom, 
and confidence. You're in Christ. The stronger man has liberated you from Satan's house. He has no claim on you anymore. You don't need to live in fear of the work of Satan. You don't need to buy into superstitious practices to protect yourself from him. You don't need to obsess over him. Because of Jesus' victory over Satan on the cross, the words of Romans 8 are true. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Well, we we haven't quite finished our biblical theology, have we? We haven't got to the last pages of the story. Hear these words from Revelation 12, from the end of the big story. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. That victory that Jesus wins over his enemies on the cross is victory that he invites us into. Victory that we can rejoice in. Victory that we can have confidence in. So why don't we pray in confidence, thanking God for that victory that he's won over Satan, and then we'll sing to God together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that by your work on the cross you liberated us from Satan's house. Thank you that you disarmed your enemies. You made a public spectacle of your enemies. You triumphed over your enemies. Thank you that your triumph, your victory is our victory. Help us to live in that victory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.